He could make it up, of course. Fake it if he had to, but he had no idea where to start. Father John was in over his head, but not in a way you would expect. No scandals, nothing that would make a juicy Hollywood movie script or terrible news headline. Father John was an English major and undergrad before entering seminary. He excelled in academics and in his pastoral year, but now he's four years out of seminary, four years since being ordained a priest of Jesus Christ, and he's married scores of people and buried what seemed like hundreds. And apparently his bishop thinks highly of him because now he has a new assignment at a parish that's doing something he'd never teach you in seminary. At this new parish, his growing community is fundraising what seems like a boatload of cash to build a few new buildings for the parish. He's got to manage his staff, see to the spiritual needs of his flock, and now this? Seminary is no MBA, but he's the guy for the job, and he's got to start somewhere. If you are this proverbial Father John, this episode is for you. It's all about development, fundraising, parish growth, and money in the parish. It's the first of many episodes where we'll talk about beautiful things, the money that pays for those beautiful things, and the parish where it all happens. We're glad you're joining us for another episode of the Beauty Ever New podcast. Welcome. This is Beauty Ever New, where money follows mission and mission follows money. Hey, uh, I said that. The, hey, yeah, I was just quoting you, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to keep on quoting you the rest of the podcast. <laughs> okay, um, great. People, yeah, there is enough money out there. Yeah, so, there you go. Uh, today on the Beauty Ever New podcast, we have uh, Andrew Robeson. Andrew, say your name and what you do. Thank you very much, Chris. My name is Andrew Robison. I am president of Petrus Development, which is uh, we're a consulting firm. Um, we work with uh, primarily Catholic organizations, but we work with uh, nonprofit ministries of all kinds to help them um, start and or build uh, development programs. So uh, churches, Newman Centers affiliated with uh, public universities is kind of our niche. So anyways, uh, I've been in this role as president for a little over a year. So uh, I am uh, I am in it to win it. I am committed <laughs> to this role and this work. Uh, I love it. Uh, I love working with great, uh, great priests, great development directors, great ministries, and great donors, great benefactors who want to uh, want to impact the church in uh, positive ways and want to uh, impact society and youth uh, in positive ways as well. What What is a day in the life of a development director? What do you do? What are the actual things that you do between, obviously, like direct ask for funds is, is part of it, but what else do you do? What's What's most of your day like? Yeah, sure. So, good question. Um, so, as a director of development, the, the most, um, well, let's say this, the way to raise more money in this line of work um, is by building relationships with individuals who want to and are able to support your mission. So, and I don't want that to sound like your the purpose of getting close to somebody is so that they will write you a bigger check. It really is a relationship relationship based business. And um, when people understand when the you know one of the hardest things to um, to to one of the most necessary things, I guess I would say, for somebody to feel in order to write a check is they have to trust, right? They, if somebody is going to write a $50 check, there's a level of trust. Uh, it's not as high, but they trust that that $50 is going to go to where they want it to go. If somebody is going to write a $100,000 check, the level of trust is much higher. They need to know 
that what they are supporting, the, the money will go to the right place, the money will be used in the way that they want it to be used, and it will ultimately make the difference that they're hoping to see. And the same thing, you know, the dollars keep going up, the level of trust keeps going up as well. What, what, I'm, what, what, what I'm getting at there is that in order for somebody to be willing to support at that high level, they have to be able to trust the organization, and trusting the organization means trusting the people that run the organization. So, um, you know, of course, that starts with a director. Um, so, you know, for if it's a Catholic ministry, oftentimes that's a priest, although not always. There's a lot of lay directors um, that run very, uh, you know, great ministries. Um, but, you know, let's say it's the Catholic priest or the director. That's kind of the first uh, level of trust. But after that, it's generally speaking, they need to be able to trust the guy that is actually trust the guy or the trust the gal who is there. Um, explaining to them the opportunities for them to give and opportunities to support. So, so, so what? I'm just jumping real quick. What causes yep. that trust? It's not, it sounds like what you're describing isn't so much a job of a single person, so much as as every single person that works for the church. And if it's about developing trust, then they don't trust just the pastor. They yep. it seems like they would want to trust the institution and the system in place that sort of supersedes an individual, you know, with a particular charism. Yes, absolutely. And so, one of the things that we work with are um, clients with a lot is, and, and the ministries um, that, that we work in, is building a culture of philanthropy. And what that means is that everybody on the team, um, everybody with an organization is engaged in the work of philanthropy and the work of development, whether they realize it or they don't. Um, you know, when I was talking about those, uh, those people that give back to, schol- to, to support scholarships, the in, so let's say you have an, uh, a a person who's an alum of a of a college that graduated forty years ago, and then they get involved you know forty years down the road and they want to create a scholarship. The what is the what starts them on that path to creating a scholarship and giving a lot of money is not necessarily the meeting that they had with the development director. It's the class that they took forty years ago uh, that formed the, their opinions on whatever it is that they are. Um, studying or working in. It's the relationships that they built. It's the, uh, you know, the experience that they had at that college that lights that fire that then 40 years down the road, the development director may be able to draw that out of them and, and present them with, I know you had a great experience. What if you could create that, that type of experience for other people through your giving? Then they say, ah, that's what I want to do. But it starts with that initial relationship that they form with the institution. And that is the, the, the faculty, the, the professors, the students, the president, all of that forms that, that, that experience. Same thing when you look at Catholic ministries um, is, you know, the relationship starts with, the, uh, with their experience with, with church, with the relationship they have within their, their faith community, and then uh, what the role of the development director is, is to just simply breathe life into that and show mm-hmm. how they can translate that experience and expound that experience to other people through their giving. So, yeah. um, uh, so, so you're right. It's very much, it's not just simply the development director. The development director is a cog. I don't want to say a cog yeah. like in a diminutive way, but a, 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 um, a piece of that, um, that, progress that progression um that moves people from having a great experience wanting to to see that great experience uh you know in other people and then this is the mechanism for which they can make that happen through their giving so yeah the raw material doesn't come from the develop from the development uh director you know that in a way 
you you have to have trust is built over many many years you know it's not something that you can just manufacture in six months yeah. and so it's it's having your institution give meaningful and valuable experiences to people that will then make the job of the fundraiser really easy because all the fundraiser is doing and not, not to say that there isn't you know skill involved but the fundraiser takes the raw material of all the good things you've done and tells your story and the yep. creativity the creativity of, of, of the, the fundraiser is in how the story is told. But yeah. it's your story. It's not their story. You know, and I think that's the, the big difference. You can't manufacture trust. You know, you have to build yeah. it over many years. No, you're absolutely right. And I can tell you from working with a lot of different. So, like I said, I, I, I work a lot in the world of Catholic campus ministry, which is, uh, you know, the ministries that serve the students um, and the faculty of a university. And... I can tell you that the the organizations that I work with, where they've had a strong campus ministry, strong directors, um, you know, active uh, programs, and the people that they're the alumni that they're connecting with now have, you know, they can point to when they were in school and they had a great experience with that campus ministry. The 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 uh, the success rate or the you know the ability to fundraise in that arena is so much different from a from a ministry that had nothing going on or was very nascent or was very, mm -hmm. um, uh, you, you know, just there was not a lot going on. And so what you're doing is you're contacting alumni and saying, hi, I'm from the, from the Newman Center, you know, and I know you're an alumnus and they, you know, say, well, yeah, I was alumnus, but I never once stepped foot in the Newman Center because it wasn't doing anything. Mm. Okay. But yeah, I know that, but now we are doing stuff and that's why we want you to, that's why I want to meet with you and find ways for you to support um, yeah. that. So that's where the, there's an extra amount of work involved. It's not impossible, but I can just tell you to, to uh, sort of hammer your point home. Absolutely. It's a much easier progression um, when they have had that experience versus when they have not. And you're trying to, um, uh, you're trying to, you know, just sort of, not, not just sort of, but you're trying to rely on their connection um, as, you know, affiliation and not based on that experience so yeah you know you're pitting a memory which can be something that's very powerful yeah. against a promise which yeah. a promise is something that could or could not happen whereas a memory is something that's like ingrained in you and it's i feel like it's way more powerful in in people's minds than than let's say a promise right yeah people say people say all the time uh, that that giving philanthropy is truly an emotional experience and it's true it is because yeah. it's not rational to take money that you've earned and give it to some organization or somebody who needs it who says they need it more than you do that's not a rational thing to do uh so it has to be emotional there has to be an emotional connection for you to want to do that now there's certainly logic involved you know especially when you're looking at uh, you know making a difference and impacting and um, you know, getting, you know, quote, a return on your giving, but it, it all starts with that, that emotion of this is something that I love. This is something that I'm passionate about and I want to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to cash in two heaven points, please, for my donation to the capital. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. We don't, we don't do that anymore, Chris. That, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that ended uh, like the 16th century. Yeah. Hold on. Let me, let me see your vouchers. You don't have quite yeah. enough. Go back and fundraise a little bit more. Yeah. No, yeah, really. I mean, it's, it's it's a uh, it's great because you know the, the podcast is titled Beauty Ever New, right? The podcast in some way is grounded, like the heart of the podcast is in the aesthetic experience. It's in something yeah. that is 
um, that is primarily corporal and visceral. And, and that's a thing that the Catholic Church uh, has always done and does really well, is that you can, you can be simple in your faith because the, you know, the kind of meat space of life, like the, the physical, the tangible, the sacramental, because it matters so much. And um, what, I, what I hear you saying is that people that are involved in a ministry that, say, doesn't have some sort of national acclaim or say it's your, your local parish and you're doing fine and, and you, you want to grow, just because you don't have a big project going on doesn't mean that what you're doing now isn't laying the groundwork for the next thing that's going to happen. And that, not, not that like big projects mean you're succeeding, right? Like if, if people are growing in holiness, you're, you're succeeding. But um, for, for the people out there, like if you if you listening to this are a seminarian who has you know recently been ordained, now you're your father, whoever, um, first of all, thanks for your vocation. Second of all, you're going to a parish that's not um, you know, growing in any significant way. What you're doing by, you know, investing in the people and investing in the community is laying the groundwork for some future project that um, that is in some way rooted in the trust you're talking about. So you're you're absolutely right. And one 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 point that I've always believed. Well, I say always. It certainly now it's a belief of mine, very strong one um, that you kind of hit on, um, but I think kind of relates to you, your audience, and this story a little bit more is that. M- very rarely do people give to an institution to build a building. Mm. It's not the building that they are necessarily um, giving to. It's the experience that they had or the, it's, it's, it's the experience or the impact that will come as a result of that new building. Mm. So uh, that is, uh, you know, that, that, that's something that I've seen across the board, whether it's churches, whether it's uh, universities, whether it's hospitals, it's not the building that they're funding. It's the experience and the impact that that building. And so as fundraisers, that's where, you know, it seems natural for you, for us to, uh, you know, we have a big building project and, uh, you know, you show pictures of the new building and talk about the new building and the features and the amenities and all of that, which, which I think is a, there's a piece to that that's important. Um, but what we have to really focus on as fundraisers is this is why we need the building and this is the impact that this new building mm-hmm. or this new facility will have. And that's why we're asking you to invest in this program or this initiative. And that's where you really uh, have success in fundraising. Yeah, and in fact, I actually see a lot of overlap with even what we do. Um, I think a lot of what we do is also storytelling, you know, because I think you're absolutely right. Even as an architect, what we sell is not even the building. I, I, th- I think that mm-hmm. for a, a good building is a place where life happens. You know, it's a, it's a place where memories are made. And even when we prepare renderings or when we prepare images of the building, the, the images that people respond to the most are the ones that show the people and what they would be doing inside of the building. And the details of the building almost drop away because what matters is yeah. what's happening in the building. And a good building is almost one that gets out of the way to let life happen, you know? So I think that there's actually a lot of overlap in how you think about, you know, fundraising and, and think about what moves people and even the design process. So I, I think that's really interesting. Yep. One of the things that we always joke about is if you want to raise more money, put pictures of babies and puppies on your materials <laughs> because people love babies and puppies. And so 
uh, we we used to joke about this when I was at the medical school. It's like we're training medical school medical students to be doctors. We don't have babies. We don't have puppies. <laughs> and but we did figure out. We found out a way to put a baby on a on an ad or a, a, on a promotion one time, and the baby was holding a stethoscope, and it says your funding, your scholarship could put this baby through medical school. <laughs> nice, like, yeah. nice. Hey, there we go. We finally done it. We, we, we didn't, we didn't ever get to the puppies point. But, I bet it was amazing uh, though. I bet it actually worked. That's the yeah, no, you're, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. It's uh, like I said, it's an emotional experience and babies and puppies make you smile. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's convincing someone that it's a slightly more reasonable thing to spend their money on that. <laughs> That's right. Let's talk about visions. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about the importance of them and, and really just the, the role they play in, the the task of development sure so um so kind of to your to to loop back and kind of connect this with the the rest the conversation we were having earlier um people will fund either the minish the the their memory um of an experience or they will fund the hope um that the the that the organization can bring um through the future or the promise i guess is kind of an, another word um, well, how do you communicate that promise? It's by having a strong vision. So I can tell you that the ministries that I've worked in and that I work for, um, the ones where the direct, where the leader of the organization has a strong vision for where the ministry or where the organization is going and a clear path for how to get there, that is easy. That that is about a thousand times easier to sell as a fundraiser to your to your donors than. Um, maintaining the status quo, so to speak. So, um, for example, I'll, um, uh, I'll, I'll kind of, and, and then as a development director, um, that's where we really get passionate because this is a hard job. Um, it's a tough line of work. You're constantly being told no. You have to deal with a lot of rejection um, in this work. So it's a demanding job. Um, it's tough. It kind of drains on you, um, but it, it gets so much easier if you have a passion for what you're raising money for and a, a and a passion for where the organization is going. So uh, anyways, I, that was kind of a, a roundabout way of saying that Jin makes everybody's life easier when fundraising the development director um, and just the um, just the donors. They get more excited um, about where an organization is going. And there's kind of two ways for a vision to come up. One, um, it can come up from your donors. So we kind of try to, uh, one of the things that we do, uh, and I think, uh, Chris, you've talked about maybe being part of this in the past, um, is we sometimes try to kind of jumpstart or stimulate that conversation by holding a visioning day or a strategic planning seminar or, I don't know, strategic planning may not be, the, but, but a visioning day would be a, an example. And that's where you bring a lot of your constituents together they talk about the organization. They kind of, you know, throw out. Uh, it's kind of like throwing spaghetti against a wall. You know, some of these concessions are pretty messy. Um, but at the end of the day, you have a clear sense for what people that are supporting your organization or that are involved would want to see the, you know, in the future of the organization, in some way, shape, or form. So that's kind of one way for a vision to to come up. Um, and then the organization then takes those ideas and says, "This is where we're going." Um, or it can go the other way where you have a, a, a director, so maybe a priest, maybe a lay director, and that person says, this is where our ministry needs to go, or this is where our program needs to go to be able to serve the people that we're serving. And so um, they map that out. They you know, bring in advisors, they get input, um, and ultimately they put together a roadmap for getting there. Um, either way is successful. I've seen it work in both ways. Um, 
But I think that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the most successful fundraising programs are ones where there is a very clear vision for where it's going, how to get there, and how support, uh, how dollars can help that vision come to life. Five practical steps. Dear listener, there are five practical steps you need to do if you are beginning a project or if you're thinking about a project or if you are not thinking about a project, eventually you will be involved in a project where you need to raise a substantial amount of money for um, the success of said project. Um, The five steps, I'm going to read through them real quick and then you can uh, go through the individual um, kind of elaborations of them. Step one, find a champion. Where there is no champion, there's no growth. Step two, take the vision to the congregants and advisors to get buy-in and ownership. Step three is craft a strategy. We talked a lot about that, a strategy and a plan. Step four is gather resources. And five is to celebrate the success and steward those who have supported. Um, So a lot of this gears towards what both Rafa and I do professionally, which is architecture. And and there are also some other organizations that fundraise for for specific non-construction-related growth moments. So you can take this however you want, but um, the way that we always tend to look at it is, you know, development directors help fundraise to pay our paycheck so my kids can eat, you know. <laughs> so, and they love to eat. Oh, my kids love to eat. My son Every day. All the time. He goes to bed and we like put him to sleep and he's like, Dad, can I have some food? And it's like, <laughs> but no, but he doesn't ask for like dessert. He's like, can I have a bowl of rice? That's or, like, potatoes? It's like nine o'clock. <laughs> Go to bed, kid. Um, so, anyways, enough about my family. Practical steps. Step number one, find a champion. Mm-hmm. With no champion, there is no growth. The champion can be someone other than the pastor, I would assume, right? Could be, yes. Yeah. So, tell me about step one. How do you find a champion? Um, yeah, so this kind of goes to that uh, exercise or, or, you know, coming up with the vision early on was, um, you know, sometimes it does kind of bubble up kinda almost as a grassroots um, vision of people that are bringing, you know, to that are that are coming together, um, and that are bringing to a pastor, bringing to a director, father, or you know, Mr. and Mrs. So and so. This is what our organization really needs to um, to have a greater impact in ministry. And uh, so, you know, it comes up that way, or it could be the other way, where the pastor is the one that says this is the this is the direction that we're taking whatever e- either way it comes or either way it goes that that's absolutely critical because um the whole process of building a new building or expanding a staff or um you know changing transform transforming the ministry in some way is no easy and simple task it is going to be a lot of work a, a lot of effort a lot of energy and there has to be somebody and there has to generally speaking there has to be a group of somebodies who are willing to 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 continue to move the ball forward even when it gets tough and move the uh, ministry toward that vision so i think that's the first first piece you're absolutely right find a champion um who's you know has the energy uh you know for example i've got um we've got a program that we're about to start working with and they've got the, they're 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 going to be building a new building probably um and building out some endowment to help them out long term um and so they have a building committee of three really really great guys um who are all pulling in the same direction and the the truth is is that it's a campus ministry and so they're not all even parishioners even more there because there's another parish in town and so they're active members there 
but they mm. believe so strongly in the ministry to the college students that they're in, still staying engaged. And without those three, I think the the the, the priest um, would, knowing the priest, he might still move forward with the project. Anyways, but the um, which is great, you know, I love it. Um, uh, but uh, but with those three guys, and they happen to be three guys in this case, but with those three guys who are helping, then there's just so much more confidence in moving forward um, in, in you know implementing that vision and moving uh, moving into it that they're moving forward. So yeah, and I think that's that's actually a really important point because I think while having a champion is important, I think that the best vision is the one that outlives any one person, right? And so I think when you can have multiple yes. people that really yep. buy into a vision, the better, right? Yep. Uh, I think we've, maybe you've experienced this too, Andrew. I've worked on projects where people really bought into the vision so much so that we didn't have to even sell it very much. We would show up to meetings and there would be a committee member who believed in it so much that they would want to get up and just start talking about it. Yep. And they mm. almost did the presentation for us, you yep. know? <laughs> And it's that's that's when you know a vision has really hit a chord, you know. Yep. So anytime you can get a vision that outlives any one person, that's when you know you've you've got something special. Yeah, and 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 you you're absolutely right. And you know what's interesting? This kind of makes me want want to bring up another point. Sometimes a vision is not what the people that are actively involved in your organization now want to hear or want to see in place. Mm. Um, and so it's not, you know, we're talking about a vision and getting input and, and, and getting champions and getting an owner. That doesn't always mean, though, that everybody is going to be on board with this, right? So mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's, a phenomenal, there's a phenomenal ministry. I'll use an example. Phenomenal ministry, uh, um, uh, uh, well, n now it's uh, St. John, um, the St. John the 23rd in um, Fort Collins, Colorado. They're, sorry, they're serving the students of Colorado State University mm. and they are I mean they're 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 killing it they're blowing up they've got a great ministry they've got students you know lining the walls um they hours of confession every week I mean it's just crazy and they're about to start um they're in the very early stages of a major building program major building project which will add housing which will add new new uh, chapel new um new student center uh, all of that stuff new ministry space but Four years ago, five years ago, maybe um, when the when the current director, when he was assigned there, the chaplain as the chaplain, he came in and he saw a ministry that was not friendly to students. They had mm. probably about fifteen hundred parishioners and maybe a hundred students attending mass out of a university of thirty thousand students. And wow. he said, "Wait a minute, this is not the the vision. I, I do not share this vision of where this." this ministry is going and should go. And fortunately he had the support of the Bishop, which is, uh, you know, neat necessary, but, uh, through, through some pretty substantial changes and transformations, um, that, 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 that pastor implemented and his staff implemented that the ministry completely transformed. And so just a couple of years later, they, um, they had probably, I don't know, maybe around 1100 parishioners, um, down from 1500, but they had over 1500 or 2000 students attending mass every weekend. And so, and a very vibrant ministry. And so that was a very painful transformation for them, both in, you know, sort of emotionally and psychologically, but also financially, because those parishioners were the lifeblood of the organization. You know, mm -hmm. they're there on Sunday, actually writing checks. You want the students, you want them there, but they don't have the means to support it. And so what that meant is 
going through implementing that vision of we are a ministry for the college students and we want to have one of the best ministries that possible that these students can see so they can experience what a true relationship with Christ is. They can form relationships that are grounded in the faith, that are grounded in the church community that they'll have for the rest of their life. That's what they wanted. That's what this priest wanted. And But in order to get there, they had to almost take uh, three or four steps backwards to the point where you know, they, they suffered very much, um, while they're going that wow. transition. So, so yeah, I want to, I, I kind of wanted to use that as an example of, you know, having a vision is, is great, but it's not always an immediate buy-in from everybody. Yeah. Um, but you have to, but that's where this priest was. I mean, he's a great leader. I, uh, you know, I love working with, uh, working with him and he saw what needed to be done. I'm sure he spent a lot of time in prayer, um, both before and during, um, but basically, you know, at the end of the day, put his head down and said, "Hey, this is oh, what we. Lord, what have I done? This is what. <laughs> this is what we need. This is where we're going. You, you, you get on board and you come with us, or I'll pray for you. But there's not a place for you here. And wow. uh, you know, and that sounds harsh, but um, now you look at the you look at the ministry now, and I mean, they never ever would have gotten to this point if they had continued on the you know, that trajectory yeah. that they were on. If, if that pastor hadn't made someone in his congregation uncomfortable and followed the vision that he presumably <laughs> felt like he had. Right now, this is, this is like, I'm just, I'm trying to repeat this so that people who are listening here that there is a, there's a priest who had people that were under his, you know, spiritual care. Uh, it was in some way his obligation to follow his conscience that he, you know, you know, came about through prayer to, to do these things that made his people uncomfortable um, but so that uh, a greater good could come about than just you know maintain the comfort of his congregants and people. Yeah, um, that's that's worth you know sitting with for a little bit. Absolutely. So we find a champion. We yep. take the vision to the congregants and advisors to get buy-in and ownership. Um, yep. And uh, craft a strategy and plan. Have you talked about two or three or? No. Um, so two. Uh, so step number two would be yeah, take the vision to the congregants and advisors to get buy-in. Um, and this is kind of a, you know, just simply a practical step because the more ownership you have um, early on, the, and by ownership, I mean people saying this is, instead of talking in terms of this is, the, this is, this is their project, this is Father's project, this is the church's project, it's, it's a changing of even language where this is our project. Once you can get, the earlier you can get people uh, sort of thinking in those terms, the more likely they are going to be to support it. So in a practical sense, what we do with a lot of our uh, ministries when they're about to start a, a major capital campaign is the first thing that we do is a feasibility study. Mm. And if you're not familiar with what that is, basically it's a, uh, it's a confidential questionnaire that somebody would come in and do with your donors, with your um, you know, uh, benefactors, with your constituents and say, Here's, l tell me everything that you are willing to tell me about the organization. What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? Um, here's the project that they're talking about. What do you what do you think it'll work? Is it a good project? Um, you know, how would you change it? And you know, if it moves forward, is this a project you know set up in this way that you would be likely to support? So you know, after doing you know these interviews, then um, you know, so when we do it, we we do anywhere from about thirty to a hundred of these interviews, um, and then we take all of that information, we put it. We, we aggregate it all, we, we come up with uh, statistics, we come up with stories, and then we're able to tell the pastor, this is what you know, your people are saying about this project, but they won't tell you because mm. they're still gonna say, yes, Father, I love it, it's great, right, you're right. brilliant. 
um, you know, but they'll tell us something, you know, their, their true feelings about something. And then, and actually, you know, this, like I was talking about this uh, group at Michigan Tech, the feasibility study was incredibly valuable for them because there were a lot of people that said, look, you know, I know that, I know that these things, uh, you know, these are all good things to be done, but I really don't think that we should be doing this or that this is a good idea. And out of that, Father, like I said, he's brilliant. So Father said, you know, uh, I, I, I want to be a good steward of the, the you know, my shepherd or, you know, my flock. Um, I want to, you know, listen and be, you know, attentive. And if there's not support for this piece of the project, then you know what we're either going to change it or we're going to cut it out completely and so that's so so by doing that then it creates you know ownership from those people that were part of that ad advisory process and then you know later when 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 father goes back and says uh you know this is the project that we're doing as a re direct result of the feedback that i got some of that from you you know would you support this project now i mean there's going to be a lot more interest and inclination to support so that's just kind of a practical step of the uh, step two uh, of getting buy-in but i mean it's just a matter of you know getting pe in people's minds that this is your project as much as it is father's project or as much as it is my project yeah yeah yeah. it's pretty self-explanatory so yeah. step three craft a strategy and plan also yep. pretty self-explanatory is there anything not in the name of step three <laughs> no nope. you, you gotta have a plan to get where you want yeah yeah, yeah. um and that, i assume that's you know a strategy like an overall end goal you want and then like intermediate milestones yeah um, so in a building project it could be um you know timelines deadlines phases mm -hmm. um you know in order to um you know maybe part of your project is you know before we launch into this um, building project we want to have six months worth of uh savings in the bank so yeah. that we can truly invest our time and energy in um, in fundraising and in building and not be concerned with paying our, uh, you know, our, our staff, you know, our payroll. So, you know, whatever the steps might be, um, it, it really is about creating a strategy to get there. Yeah. And, uh, step four, gather resources is, uh, is this the <laughs> asking for money? There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. You get out there, you, you, you have a great yeah. vision, you have a great plan. You have a great strategy, and then it's just a matter of getting in front of anybody and everybody that you can, sharing that with them and asking them from, for them to get on, uh, for them yeah. to come on board with you and help this project yeah. succeed. And step five, uh, probably important, uh, probably goes un, uncompleted of most of the steps. Uh, yeah. Celebrate success and steward those who support it. Yeah. So there's kind of a, a general, um, you know, uh, I don't know, sort of thought or philosophy in fundraising that. Um, especially when you get into like bigger, bigger universities and hospitals, you're, you're in three phases of fundraising at all times. You're either planning for a campaign, you're in a campaign, or you're planning for the next campaign. So there's, uh, there's never a time when you're not uh, actively um, sort of, you know, looking to what's next. And the, the only way that you can sustain um, the people and, and keep them on board for you long term is by showing proper um, gratitude and uh, gratefulness for what uh, for what they've given you already, and so um, so stewarding your donors is just always a great idea. Um, but you know that's kind of a, a step that gets left off um, with a lot of places, just because you know you're you're going and you're going and blowing so fast that it's you have to be mindful and you have to be intentional about stopping and saying you know we've been very blessed. We need to be grateful and we need to pour back into the people that made this possible um, in a meaningful way.
Yeah, yeah. So in a way, it's it's keeping people engaged even after the project is complete. Yeah. And finding finding ways to keep them updated, maybe give them updates on what's going on with yeah. the contribution they made, things like that. Yeah, one, one thing that we do with a lot of our um, campus ministry clients is at the end of the year, we do a, a, a Christmas um, or an Advent appeal or near the year appeal, which would be a letter, but then we include a wish list in there. So we put about 10 to 12 items on there. Some of them are you know physical, tangible items, so we need new couches for the students, student lounge, or we need uh, you know crucifix to put in all of the classrooms. And then some of them are... Um, you know, we're looking for sponsors for our for students for retreats. Um, you know, we're looking for food for the you know our Sunday donuts, things like that. But what I always advise people is, people will give, and they'll you know give you fifty bucks or whatever to go uh, you know towards crucifixes, or they'll give you two hundred dollars to put a new couch in the student lounge. the The most important part of that though is you need to keep track of who made those gifts, and then when you put that couch in the student center, take a picture of it, send it to that donor, mm -hmm. and say. This is possible because of the gift that you made. So that it sounds like a very you know sort of elementary or simple thing, but it never happens. So mm -hmm. the yeah. when it does happen, it stands out as this is something. This is some. This is a. This is a special place. And B. Um, I feel so good about that um, gift, and I know now that it's being used for what I wanted it to be, and that the, the their inclination to give another gift down the road uh, or immediately is just so much higher. So, mm -hmm. so, Steve. you know, with a building project, you're looking at, you know, a lot, a, a lot of different, you know, a, a totally different scope and, and things like that. But it's the same principle applies. If you're truly grateful for the gifts that you have, then you need to be genuinely thankful. What's the best thank you gift you have given or seen given as a, as a thank you for uh, someone donating? Oh gosh. Um, that's a good question. We had a great, um, uh, you know, when I was at, uh, uh, well, I kind of, we started the idea at St. Mary's and then I stole it and used it at the, uh, when I was working for the university. But um, at St. Mary's, uh, this is the Catholic Center at Texas A&M, we had an artist do a, um, a, a, a watercolor, I think it was, um, of the chapel. And it mm. was beautiful. And then we asked her, you know, afterwards, could we could we make prints or could you make prints of this to give to the people that actually funded the the building of that chapel? Yeah. And so she said, yeah. And so everybody got a framed um, piece, uh, you know, print of this mm -hmm. watercolor, um, and it was very special for them. And we did something similar at the medical school where somebody did a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a drawing of sort of the art of medicine, the practice of medicine. And anybody that created a new scholarship at the medical school, we got one of those, put put a plaque on it with their name and the name of their scholarship and presented awesome. that to them and people loved it. So yeah. it's a Speaking reminder, of, it's a reminder of the gift and it's a reminder of the impact, but it's also, um, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, a nice, uh, a nice gesture and a nice uh, token yeah. in of itself. Speaking of prints, we were talking about uh, after we, we, or while we're going through the process of fundraising for architectural projects, we would do little 3D prints of your building. So you get something that's like a little yeah. baseball size mock-up of your, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for helping build a, a yeah. bigger version of this. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. Fun. It's funny though, because I, I, I'm very surprised by the number of parallels there seems to be between your work and our work. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, because I, I think, fundamentally your work is about building relationships like you talked about earlier but i would say our work is also very much about building relationships totally and i think 
one area where we actually need to get a lot better at is in how we keep contact with with clients you know mm. finding kind of natural but creative ways to just keep them engaged remind them of the project we worked on together and etc cetera, etc cetera. so that is something that i think we need to improve on <laughs> yeah i mean just from a practical standpoint you know the, the your your best donor is a previous donor your your best client is a previous client right mm -hmm. so yeah. Uh, you know, just from like a, a dollars and cents standpoint, it's just good practice. But uh, it's it's all about we talk a lot in, in fundraising about that donor experience. And so, like I said, it's not rational to give your money to uh, somebody else to use it um, for for their own project. And so um, what that what I what that means is that um, we need to make that we as development directors, if we can make that a positive and a worthwhile and a, and a meaningful experience for them, then they'll actually want to come back and do it again, as irrational mm -hmm. as it seems. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, and that goes from everything from, you know, being respectful of them throughout the whole process of, um, uh, you know, uh, cultivating that relationship and, and asking them for their support to being genuinely um, concerned and caring about them and, and the experience that they have and the the gratitude and showing that gratitude in that way and so uh, you know people that have a positive donor experience they give a, they give again people that haven't they don't have that positive experience those are the people that give one time to an organization and then never again if you build it will they come <laughs> i should ask you the same question you yeah. <laughs> you're the ones actually building it <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, like I said, money follows mission and mission follows money. It, well, people... let me, let me give some more context to the question. Yeah, sure. So, you know, before you talked about how you lay the groundwork for a successful mission and a successful vision way yeah. before anybody shows up to try to raise money, you know? Right. So if you have a ministry that is really struggling and you build a building, does that automatically give it a boost? You know, is that enough to give it a boost? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, you know, if I was, um, uh, you know, if I was talking about, you know, how to how to have a successful mar uh, a successful marriage, and your marriage, you know, I'm and advising somebody who is, you know, in in you know a challenging relationship with their spouse, and and I say, uh, well, maybe you guys should, you know, buy a new house. That'll get your relationship back on the back on the right track. Yeah, that the answer. That's not the answer. Right. right. Uh, or, or say, you know, well, maybe you should have a baby. That'll right. that'll help you, you know, or go on, you know, go on a vacation. Like there's a lot of these sort of I just steps. Bought a house and had a baby. <laughs> that's right. So you must be and doing really well. In the last two, <laughs> and the no last vacations. Right. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, um, so. So I mean, but my my point is that building a building <laughs> is not a way to transform the uh the the heart the interior um of a ministry in the yeah. way that yeah, that right that's on. that actually investing in that ministry and and growing the you know engaging more people and you know being true um you know in in the catholic church it's it's about bringing more people into a fuller and deeper relationship with christ and that's how you energize a ministry not by building a new building. Preach. Yeah, right on. No, and, and <laughs> preach your brother. And and I think that uh, at best it gives you a temporary boost. 
but it's something sure. that like is fleeting and goes away. And, I, and like you said, if if the heart of the organization is not thriving, if it's you know even if the facilities are falling apart, but if the ministry is thriving, if there's something truly moving and inspirational, it's like the building becomes a reflection of that. It's not the building that creates that. You know? Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, this this kind of reminds me. We went to um, Colorado. My family did over the summer. And going through Colorado, you drive or going to Colorado, you drive through West Texas and um, kind of the Panhandle, and see a lot of really small farming communities, right? Um, where the entire town is a grain silo and uh, a general store. You're like, hey, that was another town. That's great. Um, but there was one, and it really stuck out to me. And I don't. I, and the reason that it stuck out is because. We're, we're driving through this town, and I mean, it's, like I said, big grain silos, and that's about it. But there's this one building, and I mean, it was huge. It was at least, I don't know, seven, 8,000 square feet. It was brick. Um, it had a beautiful uh, roof on it, and mm -hmm. it was in the middle of, well, it was middle of this town, which wasn't really much of a town, but it was completely vacant, and you could tell that it had been vacant for a while. And what initially struck me was, wow, that's a building that will stand the test of time, right? Yeah. Like you see, yeah. too often you see, you know, farmhouses that are, you know, falling down because they're nobody's there. And this one was obviously had been vacant for a while and it was still standing there. But then it also like struck me like, wait, what was the purpose behind that building? Was it, uh, you know, for was was the idea that if we, you know, we have this little town and if we build a beautiful structure for whatever the purpose was, then people will automatically come and live in want to live in this town. And that didn't happen, and so then the you know the building went away, or you know went vacant. But it was just like, wait a minute, I can like pull so many great analogies from yeah, this yeah. from this incident that you know it's not simply a matter of you know we need to look we need to look better, we need to present ourselves better. It's no, you need to have substance, you need to have meat, you need mm -hmm. to have truth behind uh, behind everything, and that's ultimately what will make you quote successful in the long run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because when you when you look at that building. That you could see at a point in time in history, someone was trying to like, you know, mark what was going on there. Yep, that's that's sort of awesome. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So that's a pretty good place to like end with a random building out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you too, dear listener, are gonna have a random building in the middle of nowhere and have podcasts <laughs> being recorded right. two hundred years in the future, where someone, hey, like, what were they trying to do with that thing? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, be so lucky. So, uh, where can listeners find you elsewhere online or at Petrus? Okay, uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, so Petrus Development. Uh, like I said, I'm president of the company, and our website's PetrusDevelopment.com. Uh, go there, check it out. Um, you can find my email address, my cell phone, my uh, uh, you know any way to get a hold of me. I am not uh, I, I'm not hidden um, or shy about that. Um, it, it, I, you know I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm sort of on Twitter, but I don't even know that uh, I would recommend that. Uh, mostly Facebook and on our websites where we live. Yeah. Cool. Great. Yep. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for your time. Thank you. Cool. Man. Thanks for listening. To continue the conversation, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And let us know how you're experiencing beauty in your churches and communities. Also, check out our blog, The Intellectual Workbench, for show notes, guest information, helpful visual aids, and more.